Good evening. It's nice looking out at your faces after being with you a few days because there's just so much of a sense that I have now of kind of a little more of who you are and a little more of kind of the, the flavor of our practice together. How's the volume on this? How's, the, how's my voice? Strong enough? Okay. Good. Thank you. And um, tonight I'm going to talk some about the love part of loving the house that Ego built. I'd like to speak about compassion, and I'd like to speak about an undefended heart, how we cultivate an undefended heart. It's a good topic to be speaking about because we're right at the heart of the retreat. This is really the, the heart of the retreat, and um, this path, this path of awakening is said to be like a, a great bird, a great bird with two wings. One wing being the wing of wisdom, which we develop in part through the insight practice, the Vipassana practice, and the other wing being the wing of compassion, which we develop through Brahma-vihara practices and through really cultivating an attitude of warmth and care in the practice. And you know, as we look at these birds circling overhead, the turkey vultures, the red-tailed hawks, you know, when a bird takes off, both wings have to be in balance and strong for that bird to fly. So on the path, uh, it's good to just kind of check in with those two wings. Where are, where are they at? And I always say, if you want to really know the measure of someone's practice, how, how their practice is really going. I actually don't look to insight. I look to compassion. We can have a lot of insight and be able to talk about a lot of different things. But compassion is really the activity of the awakened mind. The awakened mind shows up in a way that is responsive and in relationship. The awakened mind shows up as compassion. So to know the measure of someone's practice, I'm most interested in, in how, how they're living their lives. The Buddha was asked, would it be true to say that part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? He said, no. It would not be true to say that part of our training is for the development of love and compassion. It would be true to say that the whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. Kind of gives you an idea of how central, how, how important this is. Howie last night, his beautiful, beautiful talk, shared, shared the story about his time at IMS in the loud room on a very long solar retreat. And he talked about the wave of self-compassion that arose for him uh, that came forth from a particularly difficult time, a time when there was a lot of suffering at work. And he said that that wave of self-compassion has never gone away. It's still here. And that wave came from, it's more than a wave, it's a lived understanding, uh, came from seeing how fragile this identity was, how fragile the house that ego built was, how it was to be using all these things 
to have some sense of being okay in a fundamental way in this world. And we all have our own versions of, of this story. And when we see and when we begin to see the futility of personality view, when we begin to see the futility of all the contortions we try to do, all the different contortions and ways that we try to fit ourselves into a certain box or a certain mold to have some form where our needs are going to be met, we're going to be likable, or maybe we want to be unlikable. We could decide to be likable or unlikable. <laughs> uh, different people do it differently. And where we can, where we can stay that way. Do you know that feeling? Do you know a little bit of how that feels to be fitting yourself into a particular mold and the kind of tension that happens there? And when we're doing that, there's a feeling that the mind can never rest. The mind's always looking for a home, looking for a home, looking out for a home because, because, um, because it doesn't know its own deepest nature. And so... This is part of the predicament of being a human being, right? Who's not fully awake. That this conditioning runs through us because we feel separate. And as long as we feel separate, there's a sense of um, a fundamental agitation. Am I okay? Do Do you see this in your practice? Have you seen this today? Am I okay? Am I walking slow enough or fast enough? How's the sitting going? Am I getting this? Am I in touch with my emotions enough? Am I not in touch with my emotions enough? (laughs) We we see this in a very um, intimate way in a retreat environment. And that's really good news. It's really good news to be seeing these habits of, of mind because to cultivate compassion, we actually have to be aware of where we're suffering. Compassion uh, requires a willingness to touch our suffering. And this is something that I, I really love about this path. I had a couple days a few weeks ago. I was just really, really tired. And I was sleeping and I was resting, but I just couldn't quite get the momentum of energy back that I was used to. And I just, it was so clear that there was some measure of, there, it was unpleasant, but there was some measure of suffering for me because I really wanted it to be different. I was disappointed, basically. And I just, um, there was a moment just being at home in my kitchen and just recognizing, all oh, right, this is suffering. And just this, this great appreciation for the fact that this path begins right there. It's not like I had to get over that to wake up and to be in a better place. You know, but just that, that this path teaches us how to work with it. There's nothing that's not workable in the whole of our lives when we have the practices of of both wings in our toolkit. So compassion arises with the sense of the vulnerability of beings, the sense of the vulnerability of beings. That's how he was talking about that he got in touch with that night in his room. The vulnerability of this human life, that we want to be in charge of things, we want things to go a certain way, and um, so much of it isn't up to us. The vulnerability of living in these bodies 
um, that change, these hearts that feel. And compassion begins to emerge when we touch our own vulnerability and when we see the vulnerability of life in general. It really, the word means compassion uh, to feel with or to, to suffer with. To suffer with. It's often um, the, we use the, the image of a heart that quivers when it meets suffering. It's really beautiful to me to imagine a heart being that attuned, that, that it quivers when it meets suffering. That's very different than your heart's over here and my heart's over here and Maybe I'll open a little bit to feel you, maybe not. But the heart that quivers, this is the territory of empathy and of, and of connectedness. And compassion, um, sometimes it feels like a, like a very, very exquisite kind of tenderness, great, great tenderness. Sometimes compassion is Fierce, it, it takes guts. Sotni Rinpoche, a great um, teacher, influential in my practice, he says, compassion takes guts because it takes guts to face what's difficult. It takes guts to sometimes to endure our pain and let it be painful. Metta is, is equally as important, but it doesn't take guts in quite the same way as it does to develop compassion. And this is a this is a quote that is from Franz Kafka. I didn't know that for a long time. I just thought it was this quote that was on the tomb of Rumi. And so if it was on the tomb of this great poet, it kind of tells you that there's there's something to these words. And uh, it's this you can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. Do you get what he's saying there? Perhaps this holding back from suffering is the suffering you could have avoided. The holding back becomes its own suffering. It's, it's kind of a counterintuitive in a certain sense. But his words speak to what we're doing here. As we're here, we're in this process of um, melting, really. We're in this process of training to notice what we've been trained out of noticing. We're in this process of um, letting ourselves become sensitized to what's happening and touch with what's happening. And so, without you know training, when there's suffering, we either identify with it or repress it. How we talked about this some last night. So when we identify with it, we become it, right? We become, we define ourselves by the suffering in, the, in our lives. We become not good enough in a full way. We become our illness completely. We become our loss completely. And when we repress the suffering, this is something our culture is really, really good at doing. Right? How are you? Fine. 
<laughs> How are you fine? Um, we say we're fine even though you know there's a huge ecological crisis that we're sitting in the middle of. How are you fine? So we're, we're, we live in a culture that um, is very well practiced in denying suffering. And we suffer a lot because of that. And as I'm speaking about this, I want to be very clear. I'm not recommending that you go hunt out suffering and you, you know, to develop compassion, you don't need to go find some big suffering. If you're in a, you know, kind of a calm or peaceful place during this retreat, let, let those moments just be what they are. There will always be plenty more suffering to work with eventually. Um, just by virtue of living in a body that ages and gets sick. Just by virtue of knowing that every relationship, every relationship that comes together will ultimately live, excuse me, will ultimately end in separation. There's, there's plenty, plenty of suffering in this life. And um, when we hold back from the suffering, it's not just the suffering we hold back from, isn't it? We don't get to just decide, oh, my heart's only going to hold back here. I'm going to be totally open to deep joy, but never to suffering. (laughs) Right? It doesn't work like that. The, The heart opens in all directions, and the heart closes in all directions. So we open to the spectrum of life's experience, or, or we armor ourselves against it. And as we open to suffering, we actually open to compassion, we open to joy, we open to all the beautiful qualities. The, um, it's interesting that, that we that we somehow think we wouldn't be affected by one another, that, that we're above that or that we can transcend that. You know, in the, in the neuroscience field lately, we've been hearing a lot about mirror neurons. Has everybody heard about mirror neurons? That, that we actually, in terms of, um, I'm not a neuroscientist, I know just a little bit about the brain, but I do know enough to know that, um, that when I walk into a room and somebody's really angry, I feel it in my gut, I get it. You probably know this too. If I walk into a room and somebody's just blue, a friend walked through the door the other day, I didn't even see her face, but I could just feel, oh my gosh, what, what's happening for her? Something was going on. Um, because we are so wired for resonance, and so much of our life is happening in our hearts and in our bellies, in, in much, a much fuller experience of life than just our thinking mind. And so we are wired for resonance and these heart practices in addition to the wisdom practices really have the function of breaking down the barriers of our perceived separation so compassion comes when when there is awareness that is free from the clinging of me and mine and self the awareness is imbued with compassion it can't help but be It's the story of self. It's the story of the house that ego built, largely unconscious, that keeps us from that natural kind of connectedness for which we are so, so deeply wired. (laughs) 
when the story of who we are isn't getting in the way, all there is, is there's awareness, knowing suffering, and a spontaneous responsiveness of turning toward, of compassion. Stephen Levine, a great author and teacher and practitioner, he languages it this way, and he's speaking about love, and compassion is one flavor of love. Stephen Levine says, What I mean by love is not an emotion. It's a state of being. True love has no object. Many people speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and no other, and anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. It's not a dualistic emotion. It's a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It is a feeling of unity. You don't love another. You are another. There is no fear because there is no separation. Isn't that beautiful? And this is something I'm, I'm talking about, and, um, and we know this from our own lives. Those of you who have had children, you know, the experience of a child being born and the love that can come forth. The experience of feeling the kind of connectedness of being outside in nature. The experience of sitting with, it, with a deep loved one or making love. There's so many life experiences we have that serve to bring us up and out of this, this kind of separation that, um, that is the root cause of so much of the difficulty in our lives. I have been in my own life feeling really in touch with what I, what I call the mercy of this understanding. Mercy is a word that we don't hear so much in Buddhist circles, but I looked it up in the dictionary because it was just the word that kept coming through to me. And in the dictionary, it's defined as compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it's within one's power to punish or harm. This is a choice of compassion and forgiveness. Mercy to me just feels like a, a, a softening in my heart. And it feels like something that... um that I would always want. I would always want to be met with mercy. So last October, my mother, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life as it relates to this. My mother, my dear mother, she had cancer some time ago, and we thought it was just in the clear and and done and gone. And as I'm speaking about this, I am so aware that probably everyone in this room has had their life touched directly or indirectly by cancer. In in, in one sense, I feel like we all have cancer because it's it's impacted all of our lives um, or the lives of someone that we've known. And so my mother, her cancer came back in a really aggressive form and in a rare form. And it's stage four, which means it's a pretty serious stage of advanced cancer. And I found this out in October just before I was going to help 
help to teach part of uh, the three-month course out in Barrie, Massachusetts. So it was really not good timing for my life. I did not want to go away and teach in a silent environment for three weeks after getting this big news, and I decided I would go do it. It was, it was clearly the right thing to go do this. And, um, you know, we, we say the word cancer, but there's so much more than just that word. You know, there's um, the emotional turmoil that goes with the experience of, of being sick like that. There's uh, chemo and all of the side effects. There are surgeries. There's, there's being in the unknown of a terminal diagnosis. And, um, and with my mother, we have had our challenges. It has not been the easiest relationship. I love her dearly. But it's been a relationship where I've really had to do some work, um, as is often the case, <laughs> right? <laughs> Between mothers and daughters, <laughs> fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, all of us. <laughs> um, but there was something that happened in me when I found out about her diagnosis. It was, it was clear to me, first of all, that I had a choice, that I had a choice that I could kind of stay in my house of Aaron with the narrative of my relationship with my mother over time and maintain kind of a certain degree of separation from her. Or I could um, stop defending my heart, basically. And in a sense, I had a choice, but in a sense, I really didn't because there was no other choice than to open my heart fully to this experience that was going on um, for my mother, and it's been fascinating because on one level I've been seeing this of Aaron, you know, myself as daughter and my mother as mother, and that's all here. It's like the poem how we read last night, to live in the nowhere you come from, although you have an address here. I have an address in Durango. My mother has an address in Fargo, North Dakota, which is where she lives and where I was born and raised. And, um, and at the same time, I am abiding in this place with her that is, it is so precious because there's a sense of, for both of us, um, there's this field of presence. There's, there's a sense that knowing how limited our time is together, the barriers, the usual stories, the usual identities that would keep us separate have really just fallen away. It really, to me, felt like a kind of um, grace for me in my practice. It's the way insight happens. It just happened. And these words from Rumi are the best words that I have found to describe what the experience is with her right now. You might have read this poem, Howie. I don't know. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. There is a field. I'll meet you there. And so, there have been all these moments with my mother of just sitting with her quietly. We've never had quiet time together. (laughs) We're having quiet time together. And there's, um, there's such intimacy with her in this quiet time together. And it's so evident to me that, that I, um, obviously my mother 
birthed me, she breastfed me, she took care of me. And, and roles are shifting. Many of you may have gone through this with your own, with your own parents um, or spouses or, or loved ones where um, I'm part of caring for her. And there's just this appreciation for how, as, as Howie said, just how fragile these identities are, how fleeting they are, how we never know when, when they're going to change. And staying close to that for me is just bringing me into a much deeper experience of love and presence. With my mother, what I'm feeling is that I'm inside of the great heart with her. It's not I'm loving her or she's loving me. There's a feeling that we are together inside this larger heart that is holding us. And it feels um, entirely impersonal and profoundly personal at the same time, which is, which is sort of the flavor, the flavor of compassion. When we are struggling or feeling separate or feeling like we're the one wave that's not part of the ocean, when we're feeling small or under pressure, what we really need is this, is this quality of heart, this quality of a great heart. And it's something we can call on. Sometimes when we're struggling, uh, you know that feeling of, of wishing that you felt compassion and you just can't seem to dredge it up? Um, it's like a force in the universe, compassion is. It's like a force in the universe that you can, you can call on. You can call on compassion. May compassion sit in my heart now. Just in the calling out for compassion, we begin to come closer to it. We begin to come closer. We wouldn't actually call out for it if we didn't know that it lived in our own hearts. Hafiz Hafez, actually. Hafez, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. The encouragement of light against its being. The flower opens up. So this kind of... um, inclining in the direction of care, inclining in the direction of um, tenderness is essential for us to wake up because it takes so much compassion to do this practice. Are you kidding me? How many times today did you feel yourself in need of compassion? Did you recognize it? Sometimes we get all tangled up in this balls of thoughts and everything going on and, and we don't even realize, oh, this is suffering. We can just begin to recognize, oh, here it is. Here's the holding. This is suffering. And any time you recognize this is suffering, sometimes it takes getting below the story. You know, sitting here wondering, am I, am I doing this right? That might be suffering. Anytime we recognize that right there is the opportunity to move in the direction of care and compassion. The, um, the folks that Mindful self-compassion. You guys are maybe familiar with that. Kristen Neff and Chris Skirmner 
of this practice. It's a little like uh, what I what I said in the talk a couple nights ago. And when when you recognize yourself in a moment of suffering, or when you feel like you just are having a hard time, kind of finding finding refuge or settling in the practice again, just putting the hand on the heart. And, and they suggest three reflections that, that have been helpful for people I've worked with. The first is just um, to admit that this is a moment of suffering. To just say it. This is a moment of suffering. This is hard right now. And the second is to just uh, remember that suffering is a part of life. And whatever suffering you're going through, there are others going through suffering quite similar to your own. That you're not alone in it. It's part, of, it's part of the human experience. And the third is just this wish, may I hold my suffering in kindness and compassion. Whether or not you feel it, just the wish, just the intention. May I hold my suffering in kindness and compassion. So that's something you can use this is a moment of suffering. Oh, that this is difficult. Oh, this is part of life. Others also know a suffering, not, not too unlike my own. May this be held with kindness and compassion. Because there's the suffering, but there's, um, there's the hurt one inside, but there's also the wise one that can hold it. So every time we turn toward what's difficult in this way without getting overwhelmed by it, we're touching into this spacious, equanimous nature of mind that can be with anything and that is unwounded, that is untroubled. Awareness um, is always fresh. One more story about this, this um, a, a visit some time ago with my mother. Because often, you know, we can direct compassion to ourselves, we can direct it to others. And, and we don't have to be free from pain to kind of offer the compassion of our hearts. There was a time when I was, I was with my mother, and this young girl named Emma came in. We, my mom was getting chemo and she was sitting in her chair and we were just having one of these quiet moments and there was a knock on the door and this darling little girl came in. She had big blue eyes and brown hair and she was missing her first two teeth. Just too cute to, to believe. And, um, and she was carrying this plate of cookies. In Fargo, the food has a whole lot of food coloring in it. <laughs> it's just the beginning, really what I could tell you. We were joking at lunch that in Fargo there are salads, but, but there's you know marshmallow salad and Cool Whip salad and raisin salad and Jello salad. <laughs> yeah, but there's not you know much green salad. <laughs> anyway, I could do a whole thing on the food in Fargo, but um, Emma was offering us these cookies, and they were these. Um, sugar cookies with all sorts of big colored frosting. And they were clearly, she'd made them with her mom. Clearly, they were from her heart. And it wasn't really that we wanted a cookie to eat, but we did want to receive the cookie from Emma. And so, um, so we each took one. And as, as Emma was handing the cookies to us, Riley, my mom's husband, leaned over to me and he whispered, he said, Aaron, Emma's hooked up too. 
And I, I hadn't seen that. I, ha- I had totally missed that this sweet, bright little girl um, had, a, had, a, had a port, and she was hooked up to her own chemo drip. So she was this girl who was probably about seven years old, getting chemo that day, going to offer cookies to all these other patients. It was just beautiful to me that her compassion and care and joy was part of the refuge, which clearly helped her to get through her own difficulty. And um, I, I just, it struck me about how, in some ways, we're, we're all, you know, the Buddha talked about the, the three the three roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. They're sometimes called the three poisons, which is a very strong word. But um, there's a sense that we are hooked up to our own roots. We're hooked up to our own poisons. Until we're fully free, there's some, some measure of those states that are, that are in the mind stream. And dharma, you know, dharma is such powerful medicine. And just as this was happening, and I was seeing this, appreciating um, the pain of the confusion and the incredible capacity for dharma to turn what we consider to be poison, what we consider to be painful, into medicine. There's just um, such gratitude, really, for the teachings. I have such confidence in this way. So often, in talking about compassion, what comes up is the feeling like, you know, others have received compassion, but I'm, again, the odd one out. It hasn't happened for me so much. And, you know, we we really all have received compassion, great compassion, or we we wouldn't even be sitting here today. Somebody has clothed us and cared for us and um, fed us, no matter how hard it's been. We actually wouldn't be alive if we hadn't received compassion. And to boot, the Buddha, the Buddha's great compassion, he, he, um, after he woke up completely, he took some time thinking about if he was going to teach or not. I mean, can you imagine living in India 2,600 years ago, having the incredible breadth and depth of insight that he had and trying to tell somebody what, 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 he, what you meant, and harder yet, maybe trying to help them do that for themselves. I can really understand why he would think twice about teaching or not. And um, he what he thought about were all the generations and countless beings to come. He thought about, the, 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 in the Buddhist cosmology, the rounds of birth and death. And he chose to teach out of compassion for us, really, out of compassion for future generations. And I think about how it would be in our world if we were thinking about the implications of our actions on future generations, even just 100 years from now. How different would things be if we were thinking along the lines of the Buddha there? So even when, um, when compassion seems far away, there are, people, there are people all over the world who are formally doing compassion practice right now for all beings, which includes us, for all men and for all women and 
for all people in California and all animals in California, there are beings right now, as I'm speaking, doing compassion practice. So if you don't feel your own compassion, this is part of how you can call on it as a force in the universe. You can borrow compassion of others. You really can. In the, in the Metta Sutta, there, there are instructions to develop these different heart qualities. And one of the instructions is just to develop an awareness imbued with compassion that spreads in all different directions. Thus she keeps pervading above, below, and all around, everywhere and in every respect, the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with compassion. And then it's described by the Buddha as this, as abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. And I actually asked our retreat manager, Aaron, to print this out for me, but he thought I meant for, it to, for, um, for this to be printed out for each of you, so we just happen to have all these copies of this. So <laughs> all of my thought, right on, Aaron, good thinking. I left them in my room, but I'll leave them up here tonight um, for, the, for the next sit. So um, these teachings are, are steeped with compassion for us. And when the, when the Buddhist teachings arose in India, they really arose as a spiritual force against social injustice, against the caste system. These teachings and, and, and what the, the kind of social structures that the Buddha implemented and suggested advocated equality went against de- degrading rites and rituals. So compassion is it's a verb, really. It, it contains within it a motivation to act. This is another story because the truth is that um, we don't have to try to be compassionate. Compassion is what is left as our minds get quiet, as our misunderstanding lessens. Sometimes um, compassion even surprises us. Sometimes it just shows up out of the blue. This is a story from a book by Gregory Boyle. Anybody in here know, know Gregory Boyle? Uh-huh. He's great. It's called uh, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. And Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest, and he started a nonprofit organization called Homeboy Industries. And this organization is a gang intervention program in L.A. And so he brings in these gang members and ex-gang members, maybe some are a little bit in between, and helps them to um, basically reform their lives and get jobs. And he um, brings in a lot of people who are freshly out of jail and has this big tattoo removal company. (laughs) He does all sorts of things. Um, And he travels around the country speaking. And in his book, he talks about this um, trip he was on. He was on a trip to three different speaking gigs. And he brought, and this this is his language, he brought two older homies, Memo and Miguel, to help him on this trip. And they went to a town called Pritchard, Alabama. Has anybody ever been to Pritchard? Really? Okay, I've never been to Pritchard, Alabama. This is about Pritchard. 
And so Gregory, they call him G, goes with these two homies, Memo and Miguel, to Pritchard. And he says, we take two hours to drive and walk around in what I think is the poorest place I'd ever seen in the United States. Hovels and burned out shacks with lots of people living in what people ought not to live in. Which is actually saying a lot, because these guys have really seen some poverty. Memo and Miguel are positively bug-eyed as they walk around, meet people, and see a kind of poverty quite different than the one they know. We return to the house where we're staying and have half an hour to pack before leaving for the airport and returning home. We all go to our own rooms, and I throw my suitcase together. I look up, and Memo is standing in my doorway crying. He's a very big man. He'd been a shot caller for his barrio and has done things in and out of prison for which he feels great shame, harm as harm. The depth of his core wound is quite something to behold. Torture, unrivaled betrayal, chilling abandonment. There's little terror of which Memo would be unfamiliar. He's weeping as he stands in my doorway and I ask him what's happening. That visit to Pritchard, I don't know. I guess it got to me. It got inside of me. I mean, and he's crying a great deal here, how do we let people live like this? He pauses. Then he says, gee, that's what they call Father Boyle, gee, I don't know what's happening to me, but it's big. It's like for the first time in my life, I feel, I don't know, what's the word? I feel compassion for what other people suffer. And Gregory Boyle writes, outcast, victim and victimizer, sheep without a shepherd. Memo finds his core wound and joins it to the Pritchard core wound. Entrails involving the bowels, the deepest place in Memo, find solidarity in the starkest wound of others. Compassion is God. The pain of others having a purchase on his life. Memo would return with other homies to Pritchard many times. A beloved community of equals has been fostered and forged there, and the roofs just keep getting ripped off. Soon enough, there won't be anyone left outside. I love that story. Because it's like, um, despite this guy, despite himself, this man had seen so much. Um, Going into the suffering, opening to the suffering, he found his own heart. Because, as I said a few nights ago, it's in the connecting that we find our hearts. One of the, the barriers that was brought up an important question the other day to one of the, the fears around developing compassion is, is the fear of overwhelm. Like, how am I going to open? Um, how, am I, how am I going to open my heart? And first of all, you don't have to like open your heart to all the suffering of the world. Just recognizing when, when there's tension and having the intention to meet it with, with compassion is enough. And what we're developing in this practice and this is important because it's not going to be helpful. I want you to hear this. It's not going to be helpful for you in the rest of the retreat to 
be developing some big compassion project in your mind. It really comes from how we're meeting our experience. So the moments of just walking to walk and sitting to sit will really serve the development of compassion. Um, But this fear of overwhelm, we are cultivating a kind of compassion that's sustainable. The compassion that allows us to touch the suffering but not be overwhelmed by it. There's not, there's not a great statue of Kuan Yin in this room, but have some of you seen the statues of Kuan Yin? I think there, there are some around Spirit Rock. It's a statue of a, of a woman. This is the embodiment of compassion. And again, as Howie said, the, the, the juice doesn't live in, the, in these guys. It lives, <laughs> it lives in all of you. But um, she's sitting and her eyes are open. They're, they're not open like this, but they're just calm and open. And she has um, one, one knee up with her foot um, pointing into the world. There's, there's a sense of her level. She's engaged. Her eyes are open. She doesn't look overwhelmed. The Buddha, in his teaching, he didn't seem overwhelmed. So we're, we're cultivating a kind of refuge and container that allows us to meet what's here and that is, that is grounded in something much deeper and much quieter and much more um, immediate. The wisdom, the wisdom wing, one thing that the wisdom wing brings to the practice of compassion is a deep understanding that everything is arising due to countless causes and conditions. You know, if, if things could be otherwise, actually they would be. Countless causes and conditions. And when we, when we see that, and when we see this in our own life, coming for a sit and all the causes and conditions, your mind is doing its thing. Um, that's part of where that quality of mercy comes from. It's just these, these incredible conditions at work in our lives. And because what is happening arises from causes and conditions, if you think about just the causes and conditions it took to bring you here, so much more than just somebody helping out at home. So much more than having some measure of resource to be able to attend, whether you got a scholarship or not. Somewhere you got interested in this stuff. Somehow you had the sense organs to perceive and hear the teachings or get wind of them. You know, if we look at what brought each of us here, countless causes and conditions, it's no mistake that you're here. And... Because life unfolds in this lawful way according to causes and conditions, what we do really matters because our actions are part of the causes and conditions. A moment of mindfulness actually really matters because it's planting the seeds for the next moments to come, causes and conditions. And in this way... um, you don't have to like work harder to engineer your good work in the world because we're already interconnected. Goodness comes from what you're doing here. And in my experience, compassion is like a fuel for me um, in, in my practice. It's like a, it gives wind to my sails. When... When we know compassion, we don't have to be afraid of the suffering. 
And so nothing can stop us in a certain way. We don't need to be afraid. Kind of the personification, Kuan Yin, the personification of compassion. And another name is she who hears the cries of the world. She who hears the cries of the world. And when Thich Nhat Hanh was asked, he was asked some time ago, what do we need to do to, to save our world regarding this ecological crisis that we're in the middle of? And he said, what we most need to do is to hear within us the sound of the earth crying. It's actually powerful. He didn't actually say go right to action. He said to hear within us the sound of the earth crying. So, it all, it all starts with being willing to come face to face with what our experience is, face to face with these tools of presence, of care, and to be willing to have a compassionate relationship with the parts of ourselves that we, um, that we reject, to be willing to have a compassionate relationship with the parts of ourselves that we kind of just wish weren't there, just wish we could put on a shelf. It's a different approach than putting it on a shelf. The places that seem unworthy of love are actually what are most deeply in need of a compassionate heart. So this aspiration to wake up, the word, the word bodhicitta, bodhi means awake, and chitta is the word for mind-heart. So bodhicitta, is, it's, it's the nature it's the nature of, of who you are, really, in, in the most essential way, in the deepest way. And this aspiration, when Howie does the sharing of merit in the evening, and he, has, he, he, he says something along the lines of this wish, this deep wish, may what we're doing here be of benefit not just of ourselves, but, but to all beings. That's a, that's a natural wish that comes from the place of bodhicitta, this, this motivation to act in a way that's of benefit to all. And if this motivation is something that, that you feel connected to a little bit, it's, it's, um, it's really a treasure. This actually, I believe, is here, sitting here in, in each one of you in this room, or I don't think you'd, you'd be here. Because as we wake up, we might start with our own pain and suffering, but soon... We, we begin to see that it's the pain, it's the suffering, and we're not separate from it. So um, when, you, when you touch that place in yourself, it's, I, I often think if there's anything you lose in life, don't lose that. It's, it's such a treasure. And it shows our way, this kind of wish to wake up, wish to be free, even the, just the wish to be happy. It's so much more, that motivation is so much more important than what happened in your last sitting. It's so much more important than what happens in any, in any particular sitting or walking period here. So, um, in loving the house that Ego built, Ego, ego knows how to 
defend a lot. Ego knows how to defend certain experiences that, that would get in the way of our, of our idea of who we think we are in space and time. Ego does a really good job of that, of not letting in um, new information. And on this path, this practice of turning toward all the parts of ourselves, especially the places that we would, we would want to reject, this, um, this is some words from a man named Jeff Hoss- Foster. And this was given to me right when this was all happening with my mother, beginning to happen with my mother. And it's like, oh, he just said it beautifully. And maybe this will speak to you too. Humility is nothing to defend. I find truth in anything anyone ever says about me. So nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened, the worst being in the world. I can find all of it. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you. I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It's the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So the next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this, what am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. And it takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of heart to, to live this. And when we meet our suffering with care and we stop defending, we stop othering. Um, we stop making others separate and different in a certain way. just thinking what I want to end with here. Sometimes there's so much to say I could talk for hours and an hour is certainly long enough. Um, I'm going to end with a poem. Another poem. Do you know Alison Luterman? Some of you might know her. She lives in, I think she lives in Berkeley. She's a, great, she's a great poet, and she really has a lot of dharma in her poetry. This is called Invisible Work. It's kind of like what we're, what we're doing here. <laughs> you know, if you could only, if there could only be thought bubbles or a, a um, like a YouTube video for what's actually going on on the inside of each of you. <laughs> There's a lot of good, you say no. There's, there's a lot of important invisible work that, that's actually becoming not invisible because we see it. We see it in your, in your faces as things start to relax and you start to have that brightness that Howie was talking about. So the work might be invisible, but the results are not. This is called invisible work. 
Because no one could ever praise me enough. Because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work. About the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said it's hard. You bring him to the park, run rings around yourself keeping him safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one to say what a good job you're doing, how you were patient and loving for this thousandth time even though you had a headache. And I, who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I am lonely, when all the while, as the Chippewa poem says, I am being carried by great winds across the sky, I thought of invisible work that stitches up the world day and night, the slow, unglamorous work of healing, the way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe, and bees ransack this world into being, while owls and poets stalk shadows, our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything, and the sea is a mother too, whispering, and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. I stopped and let myself lean a moment against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. I'll just sit. I'll just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for your attention. Time for a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.